listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, as always, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host and co-game master, dungeon master, storyteller, etc. The one and only Miguel. And uh, it is episode 103 here on Compare and Campaign, the podcast where we talk about role-playing games we've run in the past and uh, try to glean insights from the tales of those sessions we've run in the past, uh, hopefully in ways that can uh, help us as we go on to run more games in the future. Hopefully they can help you, the listener. Uh, or maybe you'll get just get a kick out of the stories. Who knows? It's a whole new month. It's April, this uh, episode. It's April the 8th, uh, 2022. Um, we try to... Whole new month? Yeah. That, that means something, doesn't it? Yeah, we try to do like a recap on the start of the month. But, uh, you know, sometimes we don't always have time for it. I think last time I, I was pretty... Uh, had a lot to cover at the start of the month um yeah i mean it depends do you have anything to oh man i sure do i got a lot of things to talk about oh man okay cool well then i i guess i'll talk about just like the one thing it's funny because i don't really have much to talk about for like the months past but i just have like a recent thing and it's a very i don't know it's it's an odd thing that I feel like is like weird to talk about on the podcast, maybe, except that I have a sort of uh, Dungeons and Dragons tie-in. Um, well, I don't. Tom, I don't, know. I don't think you have to worry about relevance when it comes to your topics of conversation. Uh, I just finished editing an episode, episode one hundred and one, where we spend like a half an hour just talking about the twist at the end of No Sudden Move. Yeah, well, that was just because it was really hard to explain. You kept being like, so it's like this? And I'm like, no, 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 because it's more like this. Um, well, yeah, but even even so, barely had any connection. So I don't think you have to worry about, you know, non-sequitur topics. So have you ever uh, watched the show Moral Oral? No, I'm familiar with Moral Oral, but I've never actually watched it. I recently did what I am now re referring to as a survey of a show, which is when I sort of jump around. I, I read all the episode synopses on Wikipedia, and then I jump around looking at what sort of strikes my interest from the plot line. Um, Do you grab like a list? You know, usually there's a list where it's like the five best episodes of a series. It's mo it's usually like I could do that, but I find usually I prefer to sort of do the research myself where it's like I read through each episode synopsis. And then if there's points in the narrative that are unclear to me or I feel like I could use more insight on, that's usually an episode that I will uh, go out of my way to watch. Um, I've done with this with lots of things. I've done this with uh, episodes of voyager and stuff um i was probably doing it with uh like deep space nine before i started watching deep space nine which i've been doing that you know one thing is that like i find i'm disappointed with a lot of the stuff that i watch these days or i'm like there's not a lot that really gets me excited and so these days my balm for that is i return to deep space nine and it's just always 
It's always solid. I love it. Um, but on the topic of Moral Oral, Moral Oral is a show that I would never watch except in this fashion because, you know, it's like it, it certainly it starts as and is pitched as like a comedy, right? To my knowledge. But I don't find it funny at all. In fact, the times when it's trying to be funny, I find like irritating. But what I did not know and i don't even know how i realize i ended up realizing this but whatever the case um i mean what what is your impression of the show i'll start with that well let's see my limited knowledge of moral oral it's uh it's like a claymation comedy on adult swim right yeah it was like a about a decade ago now or longer Gosh, I'm so old. It's crazy. Um, it's uh, it's crazy it's to like, me to think that this show ran when I was in high school, and I'm only watching oof. it now. Like, I mean, it's crazy to me to think that in 2005 you were in high school. Damn, dude, I'm 2008, so 2008. I was thinking, but 2008, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> um. It's like a parody of, like, Davy and Goliath, right? So that's what people say, but it's not supposed to be, or at least it wasn't intended to be. Do you know it's by the guy who plays Starburns from Community? Uh, D Dino... Stematopolis or whatever? I, I can't. I don't know. Yeah, don't it's know so something Opolis. It is a very... It's a Greek name. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah. He's like... Uh, I didn't know he, he created it, but he collaborates with Dan Herman quite a bit, or at least he used to. Yeah, and and Moral Oral is like very much his project. He wrote it and directed it. And originally, this is kind of bizarre, um, and, and but this is also the reason why he kind of uh, isn't certain about the Davy and Goliath um, comparison, is because originally it was a script for like a Leave It to Beaver style sitcom parody starring Iggy Pop. And it was called Iggy. Um This is this is a thing that existed? Well, this was what he planned the script for Moral Oral to be. And then I guess like I don't know if he like wrote it for Iggy Pop with no idea of whether or not he'd ever get it made with Iggy Pop or whatever, but whatever the case, he apparently, like, he had the script sitting for a while, and then people suggested that he do it as animation. And so then they do it as stop-motion animation, and so it, like, it has themes and looks like Davy and Goliath, but in reality... So the first season has a very simple formula, which is Oral is this, like, really religious, uh, like optimistic kid um but at the start of every episode he learns he gets a lesson like usually it's a sermon that he hears at church um and he's like very religious and cares a lot about god and so he hears something in the sermon at church but then he misinterprets it in some very warped way in a manner that causes him to do something insane it cause a lot of trouble um and then the recurring thing is that at the end his father uh makes him 
come to the study, spanks him with a belt, and then teaches him a new interpretation of what he was misinterpreting. But the dad's interpretation is even worse. Um, like there's one, the, the pilot episode is very goofy and crude, but like is a good example is that moral, uh, oral, uh, feels that the dead are rejecting God's greatest gift by not living. So he <laughs> gets a Necrodomicon and ra raises the dead, which is like much goofier than anything else in the show later. Um, but there's zombies attacking the town, but when his dad teaches him the lesson his dad's lesson is that you're supposed to be ashamed of your own anatomy and the problem is not that he raised zombies but that the zombies are naked and so they dress the zombies and then everything's fine there's still zombies attacking the town <laughs> but everybody's fine with it and it's all based on that weird sort of idea of like taking sort of like uh conservative christian american values and reinterpreting them the wrong way and then the wronger way um but the thing is so so and, and all of that like even just the fact that like part of that formula is like him getting belted by his dad is like it's very um you know i i don't like any of that basically but what's crazy is that by season three the f the show is not a comedy anymore and this is what blew my mind and this is what like got I guess the, in my mind the show the the claymation show on Adult Swim that has naked zombies is not a comedy. It becomes a dead serious drama. Like there's there's bits that are supposed that are still sort of comedic, but they are again. I feel like they just get in the way because really it becomes a show that delves very intensely into like very heavy subjects like. Um, alcoholism uh parental abuse uh like f familial dysfunction on various levels basically and i mean this is um i guess i'm kind of gonna get into spoil spoilers for it so like if what i just said already like kind of has you interested maybe don't listen to like the next five minutes but the second season while keeping up this formula of the first season more or less like it's still an 11 minute show with this happy-go-lucky kid who misinterprets things gets in trouble for it and then um but but like everything's still kind of twisted um at the end of second season there is a two-part episode in which oral goes on a hunting trip with his dad on which his dad becomes like horribly drunk and despondent and ends up drunkenly shooting oral and like is too drunk to even take care of him and like oral ends up like just sitting there with a like wounded leg for like two days um because his dad's like completely wasted um and it is this like huge watershed moment in the series because just at the end of season two there is this momentous occasion where like oral like that it breaks that childlike innocence in him and he confronts his dad about how abusive and alcoholic he is but then season three is like every episode of season three fits into the chronology of season two somewhere but then 
we see it from another perspective or we focus on another character like alongside the events of what's happening in season one or two and it treats every character in the show with like complete like sincerity and compassion um like you find out these and like it's still the thing is like i i still have trouble recommending it because i still find that it has a very crude and kind of nasty sense of humor that like it proves that it's better than by the end of third season like by the end of third season they as they managed to give like they managed to establish that oral managed to, to break the abusive cycles of his family and like move on to have a happy family of his own but they also give happy endings to like lesser characters and there's a lot of stuff about um how the third season was supposed to have like 20 episodes but was cut down to 13 and so there were supposed to be other resolution like positive resolutions for these characters um that otherwise come across as kind of just being like like gross jokes and stuff um but uh yeah it's just a very fascinating thing that like again it's not it's not light watching at all but like it hit me really hard and so the thing that ties it back to dungeons and dragons is that in that third season they use a lot of tracks by the mountain goats Are you familiar with the mountain goats yeah, I like the Mountain Goats. Well, John Darnielle of the Mountain Goats, uh, he's a big, uh, he's all about, he, he's really into Magic the Gathering, but he's also, uh, he's done, he did a live show for Wizards of the Coast. It was like live at Wizards of the Coast. He's got, uh, I, I, I saw, because I was, I was looking for stuff about, I, I was wondering if he had written any stuff about Moral Oral since they'd used a lot of his music in it. And he hadn't really, but uh, in looking that stuff up, I found, like, I guess it was his Tumblr or something. And he has, like, his ability score stat line uh, included there. So that guy, that guy's a Dungeons & Dragons dude. That's a guy who plays Dungeons & Dragons. You need to play Dungeons & Dragons with him. But yeah, Moral Oral. So, so what inspired you, though, to check out Moral Oral? I have no idea. I can't remember. Like... <laughs> You just sort of fell into it. Yeah, I don't know. Like, it wasn't like you were watching like a lot of community or something, or no, it wasn't anything like that. Like, like maybe I don't know. Uh, like, like I feel like it. I feel like it must have been like I saw a clip on YouTube or something. Hmm. But the thing is that it's so old. And I don't know, the thing is, like, the, the show itself, oh, I remember now, um, out of nowhere, I got a recommendation for a clip that was called The Scene That Got Moral Oral Cancelled, and <laughs> I, like, barely even watched it, but one of the comments, I guess one of the top comments was explaining that the show's third season is, like, extremely serious and, like, dramatic, and, uh like deals with really really heavy topics and i was like what what is this show because uh, like that i was have not to see this for myself of. yeah that was not my memory of it at all and so i uh investigated it and uh yeah i mean you know i guess the thing is like it made me feel something 
like <laughs> it's hard to say that for a this lot is, of stuff i've watched lately like this is the low bar for entertainment these days does it make you feel something and honestly like that's a that's a metric that i use myself i watch a lot of bad movies and uh sometimes i'll give a really bad movie a good rating because i'll be like but like i was into it you know it wasn't well made but, but boy did it make me feel stuff yeah, it's honestly, um, it kind of reminds me of BoJack Horseman. Uh, okay. And it's in, in terms of its level of maturity and the certain things that it does uh, with its plot arcs and whatnot. Um, but in fact, in fact, it's uh, like the episode of BoJack Horseman where he, where we're seeing flashbacks to his mother's childhood. Um, like it brought that to mind in places because mm. there's a similar, it also, um, it reminded me there's similar episodes of, uh, Louie that I, um, remember where basically, cause basically at some point in season three, we see episodes that like give backstory on each of Oral's parents basically. And like sort of show how they ended up together in the first place because so much of the the third season is about the dysfunction of their family and like where that comes from and whatnot um well guess what that makes a lot of sense because uh i looked up dino stamatopoulos and uh he was a writer for louis ck's first sitcom i was Lucky i was actually gonna say there's this whole sort of uh connection where like he um man i <laughs> I have to wonder about Dino like he, he Yeah, I was going to I was going to bring this up cuz I'm looking at his Wikipedia page and man, he hangs out with some problematic people. Yeah, man. Uh See here, I mean there's Louis CK of course and I mean Dan Harmon, uh you be the judge, uh but he definitely harassed somebody on uh, the crew of community. And then I see here Dino also co-hosted a podcast yeah. with Andy Dick. Yeah. Who, Good Lord. If you check out. <laughs> who his, gets kicked off his own podcast. If you check out his <laughs> Wikipedia, Andy Dick's like it just never ends. It's like every year that you check it, he's done some new thing within the past year. It's like, can they not fucking control this guy? Um, Guess not. Uh, <laughs> stays in the news anyway. Insane. Anyways. Um, but yeah, and it's the same thing, uh, you know, Vernon Chapman, we've talked about, um, uh, who, who worked on Xavier Renegade Angel and, and Hartshe Holler and all these things. He also, like, his last thing that he did was, like, he worked on this canceled film of Louis C.K.'s that was, like, God, it sounds really bad. Have you heard of this movie, I Love You, Daddy? Yeah, it's the one with Chloe Moretz, right? But, like, if you read the plot, it really seems like Louis C.K. is writing a love letter to Woody Allen and, like, yeah. the worst aspects of him. Um, yep. which, like and it, I mean, honestly, like, I am, I am not a Louis C.K. supporter. I liked him back when he was funny and not a creep, but I guess he was always a creep. Uh, but I'm fascinated by this unreleased film of his because it's, to me, it's like, it's like the day the clown cried, you know, the day the clown yes. cried, right? Yes. It's the same thing. Cause this, I've seen the trailer for this and the trailer dropped like right at the height of Louis CK's fame. 
And then all the, they're not even allegations, everything about him came out and the movie just disappeared. But it's done. Like it was oh, at yeah, festivals, yeah. I believe. Yeah. And it's, I just, it's never been released anywhere since to my knowledge. So I'm kind of fascinated by this like lost movie that I guess also kind of relates to the thing that sunk Louis's career. You know, it's it's like not that uh, unlike the day the clown cried. Um, and there was another thing. Uh, I think that Dino at least worked on Horace and Pete to some extent. Do you know that one? Right. That and that was uh, CK was. Was he like creator and executive producer of it? I never watched it, I think, but it was and like I with think Steve he was Buscemi, one of the right? Stars. It was him and Steve Buscemi. Yeah. Ah, okay. Um, but yeah, and that is also a, a show that dealt with very similar. Like again, we have flashbacks to explain where the cycles of abuse kind of like found their way into this family. Um, like it again, very very similar. Like it it feels like either like Dino has been telling this story to multiple people and they keep making it or they've all had this very fucked up uh, upbringing, which given the way society tend to churn out um, alcoholic dads in the time that they were kids. Really? Yeah, it really seems like either is distinctly possible. Yeah. Um, But uh, what's funny is that so yeah, I guess the the other thing that I want to say, just like wrapping this up, is that the other thing it reminded me of is Heart She Holler. And I asked you <laughs> if you had finished Heart She Holler, but I think it's critical that you like you have to have finished Heart She Holler to really see what I mean. Just because Heart She Holler, the end of third season is so like it's it's unlike anything else in even Heart She Holler. Like it's at that <laughs> point, it's like a surreal. It's like it's like an art film. It's like not even. It's not. It's not already like that though. No, because it has like these little crude little plots and like dumb little word plays. Uh, the last episode is literally just like fucking surreal insanity. Wow. Well, I intend to watch it. As I said to you, I had to take a break because it was like melting my mind. Yeah, and this would not help. But I will also say that like much like I think so. I guess the thing I would say in summation about Moral Oral is that I'm surprised that I found so much merit in it after like I still don't think it's funny at all. And I think it's a pretty like abrasive show. Um, And yet there is like some real uh, some real meat to it in the in the end um and similarly i would say like as much as i think the end of harchi holler like is a bunch of nonsense i feel like there is an actual meaning to that like surreal thing that they do at the end of the season it doesn't like i feel like there is a message basically um and moral oral curious moral oral really has that going for itself like like the fact if, if if I didn't know that there were these unproduced, but like like I, you can read some of the unproduced scripts for the episodes of Moral Oral that didn't get made, and like if I didn't know that they had in like 
genuinely good intentions for how they were going to resolve a lot of these story arcs and whatnot, I I wouldn't really give it the time of day. Um, but uh, there is, uh, again, some a, a level of sincerity to it that I think uh, is admirable. Well, that's intriguing. I don't know if I'm going to rush out to watch it. Yeah, I would say maybe, like, I could recommend like an episode or two and like say like this one's really good i i find it really interesting how they do this and this and like the way they express this message and how this theme goes there's one episode that actually uh won an emmy um that is mostly Hmm. just oral's father drunkenly ranting in a bar and trying to pick a fight with all the other townsfolk um but uh anyways what have you got uh, in the recap whole bunch of stuff for you Tom um, a little while ago you and I went over all the games on uh, your CD-ROM of game sharewares and demos Yeah. and uh, now I'm going to do something kind of like that but I played and finished each of these games I was in the mood to clear out a bunch of my unplayed Steam games. You know, I don't know about you, when I look at my Steam library and there's this giant list of unplayed games, I kind of feel like maybe I should play some of those, you know? Uh, sure, some of them were, were free, but a lot of them, like, somebody gifted it to me or I shelled out money for it and I still haven't played it yet. And so I, I was like, I'm going to tear up a bunch of these games. I'm going to actually play all the way through them. I also, I don't like leaving a game unfinished. I'm one of those, oh, yeah. not completionists, but like, uh, you know, I, I don't have to chase the 100% complete every achievement thing, but it always bugs me when I play a game and I don't actually finish like the main story part of the game. And so I was like, I want to play a bunch of games and I want to finish them. So I went to this website, howlongtobeat.com. Oh, man, this is an old trick of mine. Care deeply oh, really? you about do this how too? long to beat. Um, and I just, like, I, I entered in a bunch of games from my unplayed list, and I found uh, a handful of them that were each four hours or less to, to beat the game. And so I played a bunch of them. Uh, they're all pretty fun, and these are the games I played, and I'll tell you which ones I recommend above the others. But uh, first I played a game called The Artful Escape. You heard of this one? Nope. So this is... I. Uh, it's, it's difficult to even really call it like a game because there's very little in the way of gameplay. There's some very light platforming and some very light puzzles but the puzzles are just like playing the game Simon like you just repeat a pattern that displays on the screen the reason to play the artful escape is visually it is really awesome it's got a really great aesthetic I loved the art style and uh, the story and characters are really good and it's all themed around rock and roll and the plot is you play as uh, this you play as the nephew of a dead folk musician and the folk musician uh it's fictional but he's clearly sort of like a bob dylan type maybe like with a dash of johnny cash influence 
And he's just this revered folk, folk musician, but he's dead. And now his hometown, where you live, is putting on a festival to celebrate this musician. Uh, Johnson Vendretti is his name. And you play as his nephew, and everybody wants you to play a show and play all the big Johnson Vendretti songs. But you're nervous, and you don't really like folk music. You can play music pretty well, but you don't really want to be a folk musician. And the night before your show, a spaceship comes down, and an alien gets out and says, Hey, you got to come away with me. We need your help to like save the universe with rock and roll. And you get swept up in like this sort of space opera, Ziggy Stardust kind of story where you're traveling through all these wild, surreal dimensions and across time and space and uh, effectively like creating your own stage persona as this new like spacefaring rock star. Uh, it's got uh, some celebrity voices in the cast, uh, Mark Strong, Jason Schwartzman, Lena Headey, and Carl Weathers all do voices. And the, uh, the writing and the look of it is all very, it reminded me a lot of Broken Age. It's, it's got this real sort of like uh, LucasArts-esque, uh, Double Fine-esque, art style so I, I gotta and... say this because this popped in my head a couple times now and now i'm just gonna say it do you see that they're making another monkey island game devolver's putting it out and it's gonna be made by ron gilbert ron gilbert yeah i did see that my god you also see epic uh epic game store put out uh dangus uh, or they've they're they are putting out a new vampire game it's, it's a whole other vampire game. It's a oh, wow. swan song, and it's like a narrative adventure. It looks like one of those Dangus David Cage things, but uh, <laughs> probably some sort of probably some sort of mystery. I didn't see that one, but I did see the Monkey Island announcement, and uh, can already tell that it's going to result in me replaying a bunch of Monkey Island games because I believe. I believe the first three are going to still be canon, right? Uh, with this new one. Yeah, uh, that, um, that's, that <clears throat> seems like the right cutoff point for me. That'd make yeah. me happy. Make me very happy to not uh, have to play all the stuff that came after for. Um, but the Artful Escape, I thought it was really fun, really great story, awesome music, and it's just, I don't know, it's pretty wicked to, like... As I said, there's not much in the way of gameplay, but you have a button on your controller and all you do when you hold down that button is shred. Your guy can just run around constantly shredding on his guitar. And uh, I thought it was great. Really, really fun um, and not a huge time investment. Big recommendation. Like, I think you would probably really like the story, Tom. Uh, it, it was it reminded me it was almost like the Ziggy Stardust skinned version of something like Brutal Legend but with much more just like story-driven gameplay as opposed to any of that real-time strategy stuff or anything like that. Um, then, because I was on a rock and roll kick, I played another game themed after music uh, called Rivals. And this is a little indie game. I think you can get it for like five bucks on Steam. And it's another one where, you know, four hours or less. And uh, it's a really cool one. The plot of this game is that you're a music biographer. You're writing a biography about this fictional band. And 
the interface of the game is all your notes and you have to piece together the I timeline. Think I know this one. This is almost like uh Oberdin, Return of the Oberdin, but with like Yeah, music. the the Yeah, exactly. The the gameplay isn't quite Oberdin like like you're not actually exploring anything in 3D space, but the thrust of it, the goal is very much the same where you're trying to piece together this timeline of events uh, following this band through the history of their career. And uh, you do so by listening to recorded interviews with you know, band members and people associated with them, flipping through diaries and notes and you know, tour posters, postcards, just all kinds of like memorabilia and artifacts of this band. And you've got to put together the timeline for it. And it's really cool. And even though the band is fictional, something I loved about it is that the game is uh, based in the real world. And uh, it's the time frame of it is like the late 90s up until uh, I think around 2010. And because it's based in the real world, part of your playing the game is like Googling stuff, looking up you know, what day the Glastonbury Festival was held in 2001, like that kind of stuff. So part of it does involve like a little investigative research on your part. And I thought it was just a, it's got a really sort of sweet story. It was cool playing a mystery game where it's not like solving a murder or anything like that. It's really just sort of the, the way they trickle out the clues, you get some of the, you do the, you get those like, uh, you know, the answers before some of the questions kinds of things. You'll turn up a clue and it'll be something like way down near the end of the timeline and it won't be till later in the game that you figure out the events that led to that moment. Um, and hey, speaking of the mountain goats, they are clearly an influence because a lot of the music is like mountain goats influence stuff. Uh, Wilco is kind of, you know, referenced here and there. And the main band sounds a lot like them. Um, so Rivals, really cool one. Another recommendation for me if you want like a fun little mystery solving game. And I want to check out the new game from that same developer. I think it's just one guy. Uh, called Conspiracy, where it sounds like it's, you know, a lot sort of closer to a crime-solving game. But Rivals was great. And uh, let me see here. I got to get out my list because I played so many of them. Um, so many of them. I think I played about five of them total. Oh, yeah. And uh, here there are two more that I'll talk about. And then the others were things that I was replaying. So then I played a game called Welcome to Elk which is uh, this, this very indie game. The art style is kind of like a drawn and quarterly graphic novel. And uh, this is another one that has a sort of a point and click vibe to it, even though you play it like you can play mouse and keyboard, you can play with a controller. So it's not quite point and click, but it's the same type of gameplay where you're going to locations. A lot of it is interacting with other NPCs and doing... Uh, like little mini games. This one had a lot more involved mini games. The cool thing about Welcome to Elk, it has this very sort of cozy but cold small town feel. It's almost like uh, like if Twin Peaks were Norwegian. Like a lot of it is going, you know, meeting these eccentric characters on this isolated island in this rural community, and 
uh, just sort of, you know, blending into the community and becoming more involved and learning more people's backstories, things like that. And what I thought was really neat about Welcome to Elk is that uh, most of the stories uh, that the characters tell are stories from the lives of the people who worked on the game. So every now and then you'll, you know, go through this encounter uh, like, for example, you know, you're at a bar, everybody's drinking at a bar in the evening, and one guy's like, well, I'm heading off home, I'll see you later. And then when you leave the bar later that night, you find him and he had passed out in the snow and frozen to death. And then you find out later in the game, where with like a little cutaway, that one of the people who worked on the game, that story happened to him, and he sort of tells it as it happened to him. And as the game goes on, the lines sort of blur between what was written for the game and then what was based on personal experience. So it's not for everybody. It's sort of like a, it is clearly a very personal project. I thought it was well put together, but this is the first one where uh, I was like, I'm glad that it is just this short. Like, I don't think it needs any more than this. Whereas the Artful Escape, I probably could have played for considerably longer. And it's interesting. Uh, that last one brings to mind Disco Elysium a fair bit. Yeah, there's a bit of Disco Elysium to it. Um, it's just it's set in a very like normal world, so uh, the storytelling is similar to Disco Elysium, even if the setting is drastically different. And then the last one that I'll talk about, uh, this is another one that I really liked, is called There Is No Game, Wrong Dimension. Oh, yeah. Do you know this one? Yeah, I'm familiar with the There Is No Game. So uh, Wrong Dimension is like the... It, I haven't played the first There Is No Game. It's on Steam for free, and I'll probably play it. But uh, There Is No Game, Wrong Dimension is like the big release. It's a full-fledged game, uh, and... It's it is a point and click game, very much in the like scum LucasArts style, uh, you know, sort of pixelated, sort of cartoony. But what I love about it is that the gameplay here, all the puzzles and stuff are just trying to make the game work. Uh, a good example is the first thing that happens. You, you start up the game, you get to the main menu and an announcer is like, sorry, there's no game here. And a sign appears that says there is no game. And the announcer's just like, yeah, you, you got to leave. There's no game. Sorry about that. And you're sort of left to your own devices. And if you click on the sign that says there is no game enough, the sign starts falling apart. And the eye that dots the eye or the like the dot over the eye in the word is it falls off the sign and it becomes like a, a, a brick breaker ball. And then you use your mouse to use that ball to break the rest of the sign. And once you've broken the rest of the sign, a new challenge appears where like behind the sign, there's a metal plate with screws. And the announcer goes like, hey, you're not supposed to break stuff. Okay, look, uh, here, I'm gonna put the sign back up. And a new sign appears that says there is no game, but this time it's like made of metal. It's all shiny and chrome and uh, for that one, you got to like shake the screen a bit until the T falls off. And then you can use the T from that sign as a screwdriver to unscrew the plate and so on and so on. So uh, it's a really creative way of doing a point and click game where so much of it is you're just like struggling 
with the computer itself, you actually want to get to the game, whereas the game is trying to tell you not to play it. Uh, very funny stuff. I thought it was really creative. It has just a lot of really great touches. One of my favorites I is... I want to ask something, actually, about this. Yeah. Is you mentioned the puzzle where you have to shake the screen. Um, from what I had heard about this game, I feel like maybe I had heard it about it from somebody who had played it on the Switch or something, because I seem to remember there being, like, uh, fairly, like, direct puzzles that they did, like, where they literally had to shake their phone and stuff, or their Switch. Uh, or maybe it could it's on happen. tablets? I don't know. Uh, it could be. I didn't literally have to shake the screen. I did a click-and-drag shake with my mouse, because I'm just on a, a PC. But I could definitely see that being the case. It would be really easy to make it into an even more kinetic game for, like, a Switch or a tablet. Because, like, the example I was just about to give of one of my, like, favorite details is at one point a loading bar comes up and it's loading really slowly. And with my mouse... Oh, I know how you, you do this one. Yeah, you click and drag so you tilt one side of the loading bar down and suddenly it fills up really quickly because the, the fill is, like, sliding on a downward incline. So I could, I could really easily see it with a switch where you literally just tilt the thing to the side. Yeah, I'm certain that the way I heard about that originally was actually, like, somebody had to tilt their actual device to do it. Could totally see that being the case. It would work great. Um, and everything I've described is just like the early game. Eventually, you sort of do like channel surfing, but with different video game styles, most of which are kind of defunct. Like there is a section where the whole thing turns into a Sherlock Holmes point and click game, but you're operating the game behind the scenes. And so you have to like move things around so that the point and click characters can solve their mystery without you actually controlling those characters. There's another part that it becomes like a top-down Zelda-style RPG. Lots of really clever, weird things. Lots of false endings as well, where you think the game has ended, and then, oh, no, wait, there's more. Um, but it's definitely one of the most creative game interfaces I've encountered in a long while. Just really fun, like... It's been a while since I felt like the game was playing with me more than I was playing with the game. And uh, besides that, I've just I've, I've replayed the two Shank games, which are both really ah, fun. Classic. Uh, you know, slash them up platformers. Nice and short, real punchy. They still look great today. It's funny because they came out in like, I want to say like 2009 or maybe even earlier than that. And... Uh, the graphics, the vector graphics when you're playing the game still look great, but the cutscenes that are rendered in vector graphics were clearly made for a time with lower resolution monitors because they've aged more than the game itself. But those games are fun. It's just like it's machete, but as a platformer. Also, I wanted to say um, when I said I was in high school in 2008, I think I finished high school in 2008. So, but yeah, I think that's also when Moral Oral ended. I'm so old, man. Yeah, you're old. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> so uh, yeah, March, uh, March was a, a month of video games, but really all those games I played sort of in the last two weeks because they're all nice and short. And let me tell you, super satisfying just crossing them off the list, going like, all right, I played it. Played it start to finish, got the full experience. That was really fun.
Yeah. Yeah. Next, my next game is going to be a longer one. Finally going to play Inscription, which I hear oh is Oh, my God. Great. You know what? I was so ready for you to say finally going to play Max Payne 3. And I was <laughs> like, yeah, come on. Okay. It'll go. Uh, Max Payne 3 will be on the list. I'm going to play it uh, pretty soon. Maybe not right after Inscription, but around the time <laughs> of Inscription. Because uh, it's funny. I actually saw somebody on reddit post like a max Payne three retrospective talking about how great it was and i was like oh man i should play that tom loves that game and yeah i could i could do a retrospective on that one i kind of tried to with my my twitch stream i did uh, darkness 2 and max Payne 3 and those are both games that like are very melodramatic action games uh that were put out in 2012 i believe or maybe the 2012 no 2011 I think. Anyways. Anyways. So that that is what I've been up to. Best melodramatic action games of the year. Best year of melodramatic action games. McGill, should I start or should you? You go ahead and start, because I think I'm actually, uh, my session's actually going to be kind of a short one for reasons I will get into. Well, then maybe you should go first. Oh, okay. So you want me to go first? I know how much time I have I got, left. So I got a short one. So, um, so here's the thing. Uh, the the basic setup where we left off was that after the players had gotten some harvested comet ice rich in methane, they brought it down to a nearby planet to fence it. They found out that their fence had died, so they needed a new fence to get rid of the ice before it melted and exploded, because that was a danger. And uh, in between, when they arranged for the new fence and the actual like drop-off of the goods, uh, they had some downtime in just a small settlement to wander around, see the sights, and what they wound up doing was going to a saloon to watch Madame Electra, who's sort of doing like a almost like a freak show act where uh, she performs while being zapped with electricity from Tesla coils. Except they found out that Madame Electra had her hair had been burned really badly at her previous show, and so Minerva needed to fill in for her on stage. And while that was going on, the rest of the crew drank and gambled and. Uh, Things really kicked off when Saffron, the character from the Firefly TV show, played by Christina Hendricks, entered the saloon with a couple of space cowboys by her side. And, and the, the, basically what, what happened is a scheme was proposed to the players because Gale knew these cowboys and uh, and so they were like, Gail, fancy meeting you here. We want to cut you in on our scheme because you're our old friend. Uh, we've found the wreck of a famous long dead warship that supposedly has a big score on it. We're going to head out there. It could be haunted. And the more people we have involved in the scheme, the better we'll be able to pull it off. And let me assure you that the score is big enough that we'll all walk away very wealthy and happy. And of course, I mentioned before as well that part of the tension came from the fact that the players knew, you know, Saffron's true nature 
but they had to play their characters as rubes, you know, uh, suspicious maybe, but they can't instantly be antagonistic because uh, the characters themselves don't know they no that they're encountering. Exactly. They have no idea they're encountering a, a notorious con artist. Now, the reason I say this one's going to be kind of short is most of this session was character role playing and the actual like conversations and character moments are something that I just don't have in my notes. I note down, of course, like on the DM side, what the machinations of the game and I note down what the players did, like the actions they took so that I could reference them when putting together the next session. But I don't write down like the conversations beat for beat. And a lot of this session is just like conversations, negotiations, uh, strategizing, things like that. So what I'm going to do instead of describing all of this beat for beat is I'm going to sort of take you behind the DM screen and uh, explain what Saffron's scheme is, like what her plan is, the trap that she's leading these players into, uh, because then uh, this, this session ends with her springing that trap and then next session will be the players like having to get out of it and it will be much more action oriented. And so um, Saffron on the run from some previous job, this, this uh, adventure takes place late in the timeline of events of the Firefly TV show. All of this campaign takes place before the movie Serenity, though. Um, so that's sort of where things fit into the Firefly timeline. Uh, after season one, before the movie. Saffron has pulled off some previous job. Maybe she got caught, but she escaped. Like, maybe her, her scheme was disrupted, perhaps, but she escaped and she's hiding out in Frisco, this like small town on the edge of the galaxy and just laying low, uh, pretending to be a school marm, as I mentioned. And she got in with these two space cowboys that she's hanging out with. Their names are Bill and Monty and uh, they're brothers. And Gail knows these guys from back on Verbena when they were younger. They all sort of, you know, they all had like a summer job together kind of thing. Um, and so when this like coincidental meeting happens, Saffron reorients. Hitachi station. They all worked at the yeah, Tachi station. Exactly. A very like a, a real sort of bigs kind of situation. Um, she reorients her scheme and she's like, okay. So there's also this other crew. Uh, and now that we have like all these people, I'll definitely be able to pull this Wait, off. Wait, did Biggs actually work at the Tachi station with Luke? No, or but there's that deleted scene where they run into each other there, right? Oh, okay. There's that whole deleted scene where Luke and Biggs near the beginning of the movie, like meet up and talk about joining the rebel forces or whatever. Um, so Saffron's plan is uh, Bill and Monty in their grandfather's things. The grandfather died and in his belongings that they inherited, they found a navigational beacon that pinpoints the location of this long dead warship 
that supposedly has like a bunch of credits stashed in it. A, a running theme. Oh, uh, treasure! In, haunted yeah, treasure. treasure! Treasure! Haunted treasure! Oh. Yeah, the uh, the crew of the kennel they wind up as treasure hunters more often than not in this campaign. Um, and so Saffron is like perfect, a big score, and it's out in this isolated area. So behind the scenes, she has been uh, like she acts as though she is Bill's partner, but in fact she has been flirting with his brother Monty, and her plan is basically to like dupe any male who is interested in saffron she is going to dupe and sort of you know use them until they no longer <clears throat> serve a purpose and then ditch them so initially her plan was she and bill and monty would go out to this ship the ship is called the ever victorious she and bill and monty would go out to this ship and she'd send bill onto the ship to collect the goods and after he has brought them back to their ship, you know, presumably has to do it in loads. The last load, they're going to abandon. They're going to take off and, like, just abandon Bill in a dead spaceship on the edge of the galaxy to die, essentially. That's her plan. And then eventually, she's going to backstab Monty and make off with Monty's ship and the score. Now that Bill and Monty are like, yeah, we got to cut our friends in on this. Let's all get together and do this together. Uh, now that there is a second I ship Monty's involved. Monty's going to betray his brother like that. He sure is. And that's, uh, you know, it's been a long time since I watched Firefly. But I'm pretty sure second time Saffron shows up, she's like playing two brothers off each other as well. Um She's just a total, like, she's a home wrecker, a crew wrecker. Uh, turns everybody against each other. It's the, the, the peril of having a, a high charisma, charismatic hero in your midst. It can play everybody off each other. Anyway, now that there is a second ship involved, her plan has changed. Where they're basically both ships... One with uh, with Monty as the captain and the other one being the kennel. They'll both go out there. Saffron will stay on the kennel, sort of uh, claiming it, that she's like a, a form of failsafe or collateral, right? Nobody's going to take off with her on your ship, guys. So that way you know that you're not going to be abandoned here. But in fact... She's just going to do the same thing where Bill and as many people on the crew of the kennel as she can get will go on the dead ship and then whoever she's left with, she will subdue and then Monty will take off the one ship and Saffron will take off with the other. She's going to steal the kennel right out from under their noses. And, uh, and then eventually at some point in the future, she's going to backstab Monty as well and make off with a ship and a score and once again sort of get out by the skin of her teeth, having pulled off another con job. So that is the big scheme that is going on behind the scenes. And this session, uh, as I said, a lot of it was just character role-playing. So, you know, the characters, they're not too sure about this job, but it sounds like a pretty good opportunity while they're out there. And hey, you know, Gail knows these guys. They go way back, so... 
They're not likely to betray us, right? Uh, oh, what do we do? What do we do? And so after like a lot of talking and strategizing, the crew of the kennel is on board with this plan and the trap, uh, you know, the trap is set and it, the trap is also sprung in almost exactly the way Saffron planned it. The only hitch is that Daniel and Chow both stay on the kennel and Chow, especially Steve was very insistent that he's like, no, no, Chow is not leaving the ship, especially with just Daniel and some stranger on board. Also, I should say that uh, none of the male players were at all, were buying into Saffron, of course, because, of course, the players all know what her deal is. So I was unable to use her wiles to get any of their characters on board. They, they were just kind of stonewalling me. But thankfully, I have a male NPC in Daniel, and he's also the captain. So Daniel falls for Saffron's wiles. And when Daniel and Chow are left on the kennel with Saffron, <clears throat> she subdues them. Um, and I had her do it a very similar way to on the show. Um, there's the first episode with Saffron of Firefly. I think it's called Our Mrs. Reynolds, where the captain, Mal, uh, discovers that he had inadvertently gotten married to Saffron as part of, like, it's basically like the space Amish, the space Mennonites do this, this party ritual, and he finds out, oh, he was actually just married to this woman. And uh, in that episode, she plans to steal their ship. And something that I liked about the way that she does that is she takes out each crew member in a different way that is appropriate to them. So like she kisses Mal and she has this like lipstick that is drugged. So after she kisses him, he passes out and wash the pilot. Well, he's married, so he's not going to cheat on his wife. She knows she can't seduce him. So she just clocks him on the head. And it's a similar thing here where she does the, the sleepy kiss to Daniel and then knocks out Chow from behind when he's not expecting it. Um, that is happening as the rest of the crew are on this dead ship. And uh, I'll talk more about the dead ship next time when they have to escape it. But the big sort of trap snapping moment here is after everybody's off, uh, they're exploring this ship, sort of moving towards the center of it, trying to get to the, the supposed spot where the stash of credits and loot is stored. And suddenly both the ships outside go radio silent. But they're not instantly suspicious because part of the planning for this whole heist mission was saying if, you know, we're right on the edge of space, if Reavers show up, we're going to go radio silent just so we don't alert them to our presence. So the assumption on the player's part, as they are like navigating these dark corridors with flashlights, they're all wearing big spacesuits. And uh, I should also say, uh, Caesar is not on the kennel. You'd think the pilot would stay with the ship, but no, they need Caesar to try and get the dead ship's power supply up and running long enough that they can like open doors and get through hatches and things like that. So, um, so everything goes calm, silent. 
the players are are scared because they're like, oh man, they, like the away party is in danger. Re- that must mean that Reavers are coming. But and I handled this as well. This is another case where I passed Steve, who played Chow. I passed him a note to say like, you're being knocked unconscious, but you know you can't let anybody know this. And um, so the like the big sort of final moment of this session was them. Like they're they get to the the area where the stash is is waiting for them, and Caesar starts trying to power up the ship, and then suddenly the comms come on again, and it's Saffron and Monty, and they're both like, "All right, guys, well, uh, really sorry to do this to you, but we got a split, and uh, you know, good luck with your your loot while you're down there, and uh, you know." Hopefully some people will be along soon enough to help you out, but uh, that's a you problem, not us. And the two ships take off, and the players realize that they have been duped and stranded, and they have no idea what has happened to Danil and Chow, and so they are left alone on this big dead ship. And that's, like, how this session went. Um, There weren't even, like, a lot of checks or anything. I did some navigate checks and, like, you know, the the odd uh, craft electrical thing, uh, skill challenge or something like that, disable device to get through the doors. But all the really cool stuff with the ship that they're on, the Ever Victorious, that all happened the following session where they find... All sorts of stuff. In, I guess if Haunch is on the away team, he'll be really happy because there are a lot of really interesting artifacts on the Ever Victorious as well. Oh, they keep telling me not to touch things, but I can't help myself. You're finally in a spot where you're allowed to touch things, Haunch. Oh boy, it's all haunted, isn't it? It might be haunted. Probably. But... But yeah, so this session it was almost like a prelude to the really good stuff. And uh, I should also say, for, sort of foreshadowing for next session, uh, our buddy Den, who composed our theme music, he makes a cameo. He makes a cameo uh, as something or someone that they find on the Ever Victorious. Ooh. So s- stay tuned. Uh, it's a much more action-packed session next time. That's exciting. Well, I've got uh, plenty more action where I'm coming from because I'm once again taking us back to the Carven Spire, this time on the third level. Final act of Owl's Aces. We got to take out the Carven Spire. Each level beyond the first one has a portal that links to some ally of the Nightside Eclipse. We've got to cut off these allies. So, level three, they get off the lift. They find, oh, right, uh, this is Operation Earth Collapse and Carve Inspire level three uh, is based on the plunging torrents from uh, Princes of the Apocalypse. This is another one of the final, uh, final dungeons and this one was the water one, the water cult one. So, accordingly, we got, uh, they come out of the lift and they find that the entrance is flooded. There's some failing emergency lights providing dim light. This is where, uh, I, you know, it's funny. I, in my notes, 
I have written like Satan blank or Catan blank. Like, you know, I'm keeping with the idea that the Night Side Eclipse is using all these minions based on the uh, star eating gods from Warhammer 40,000 that I took the the Catan. Right. And so I have like written in my notes like Catan giant octopus, Catan quippers. And in my mind, like, so a Catan giant octopus, that's obvious to me. That's like a big, like, robot octopus with all these crazy robot uh, cable tentacles or, like, you know, uh, metal tentacles or, or wire tentacles, like, very Nightside Eclipse kind of stuff. Um, Cities and Knights of Catan. And, uh... No. <laughs> and I, uh, but, but also I see in my notes Catan ice methods. And I'm like, oh, well, those would probably be, like, weird, like, robotic drones instead of, like, typical methods. But then I looked at my doodles the next page over, and they basically just look like regular ice methods. Like, you can see these in the show notes because I included them, but, like, the the giant octopus, like, it's like a crazy robo. Like, it, it looks like a lot like one of those Nightside uh, Eclipse Demi liches with, like, the the sort of wireframe sphere with the tentacles coming out. Um, and then I also put all these different eyes on it and like a crazy beak. But then the ice methods just look like ice methods. Like I didn't draw them special. Uh, I thought that like I would have turned the quipper swarms into like nanobot swarms, like it, like just like a dissolving gray goo. Um, but no, I, I when I drew them, I just drew them as quippers like maybe robot metal quippers um so i don't know i got the classic bone weirds back you know water weird well the old return to the tomb of horrors introduced the bone weird which is you got a pit of bones and then the bones animate into a freaking serpentine uh enemy classic bone weird classic bone weird then uh past this flooded entrance we got a little uh sort of trap set up it's not really a trap but it's just like sort of you know if the entrance is flooded then beyond it we've got a corridor where nets have been set up so that if things wash down through that flooded corridor they then get tangled up in the net and here i had a Catan giant crab so like a big sort of armored low body like sort of mecha crab thing and then we got Kuotoa. I had some Kuotoa here who are here as minions of, uh, in another area, we got an altar. We got Kuotoa at the altar, and they've got a trident of fish command, which is going to come in handy for Ara later. Right now, he's got a trident. He's got that one uh, tide rebel that has the effect of greed on him. But he picks up this other trident, and that'll be And he wants later. to... He wants to command as many fish as he possibly can. Maybe. He's greedy for fish command. Yeah, I well, well, we'll see. Anyways, um, then beyond the altar, there's this nest, and the nest is the thing that is drawn the Kuotoa because they're all here as minions and worshippers of an aboleth. But I also made this one a Catan aboleth, so this is like an aboleth with all these like metallic cables coming out of it and crazy spikes growing out of its back and all these different eyes and whatnot. I named the Aboleth Valinakia. Um, you know what? I was just talking about these metal cable tentacles and everything. You know what it reminds me of is uh, 
I don't know if you've watched the Red Letter Media for the Picard Season 2, because I know you haven't watched Picard Season 2, but the way they did up that new Borg Queen to have all them uh, tentacles, it would be like Doc Ock Borg Queen. You see that? Yeah, I I actually liked the the take they did on the Borg Queen with that weird like faceplate that she has, too. Uh, I have only been following Picard through Red Letter Media. I have not been watching any of season two. Yeah, you know, uh, that's our that's our 10 foot pole, Red Letter Media. Um, also, in the treasure of this Abeleth is a Berserker hand axe. There's the first in a set that are the axes of evil. This is a reference to a song by the band Three Inches of Blood. Um, and it, it gets me onto another tangent, but McGill, did you ever play Warcraft 3? No, uh, I played Warcraft and Warcraft 2, but never you Part 3 stories, and never World of Warcraft. Do you know the stories of Warcraft 3 at all? No. So there's uh, Orc Moses finds the promised land. It turns out to be America. Uh, but also the other one is that Arthas, the human prince, is basically Anakin Skywalker. Uh, the undead ravaged the human lands, and there's zombie things, and Arthas gets more and more corrupted and insane as the things go on. Like he, he's willing to go further and further to stop the undead. Um, like even if it means like killing innocent people to stop them from becoming undead or whatever, uh, whatever the case, um, he ends up going on this quest to find this cursed, uh, this cursed weapon, this cursed blade Frostmourne. And then when he gets Frostmourne, it turns him evil and he comes back to the human lands and he kills his dad. And it's, it's even worse. He played right into evil guy's hands. Um, I say all this because it's basically the plot line of Axes of Evil, which is a song by Three Inches of Blood. Uh, there's these axes, and this guy he's gonna save the he's gonna save his kingdom, uh, and they say don't don't go get the axes of evil, they're cursed. And he's like, no, I'm gonna get them and I'm gonna save the kingdom. Comes back with the axes of evil, fucking kills everybody. He went crazy. So I I I feel like I don't know. I think I just saw the Berserker Axe, uh, like, magic item line, and I was like, oh, like the Axes of Evil. And I was like, oh, I could have one of each type of axe, and each of those spread throughout the, the, this level of the Carven Spire, and each one will be one of the Axes of Evil. And so, yeah, Axes of Evil. Um... Beyond there, the axes of evil. <laughs> there's a there's a pit there where sacrifices were given unto the Abeleth. Uh, it's it's watched over by Kuotoa, and they got another one of these quipper swarms inside. Then also we got the battle axe of evil down there. Beyond that, we got a big old cavern uh, that has a Satan Roper. You know the Ropers? All right, I always jump back and forth between between Catan and Satan because for the longest time i'd only ever read it you know and white dwarf and stuff you know ropers right though yeah imagine rope a roper up, man. 
Imagine a roper, but it's like instead of being like kind of wooden or the way that they kind of look like a tree trunk normally, imagine it's just like a like jagged piece of metal debris, like a broken girder or something with like eyes, and then all these different wires come out of it. It's like instead the wire. Of, I was gonna say chains, but no wires. It's definitely yeah. It's all like this sort of robo theme. Uh, we got the classic Satan bouncing Betty piercers. These are the piercers that don't fall on you, or they do, and then they jump at you after that. They can sort of jump up and down and whatnot. I've also got, I put 10 Reavers in there, and I, I, I kind of threw this in like it's not a unique monster. It's one I've been using over and over again throughout the campaign, but I wanted to mention it just because, like, I feel like, you know, when I talked about do 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 destructive wave how he took out like 10 cultists right there with that one destructive wave i feel like 10 humanoid dudes that are lightly armored in this campaign that just became like the bullseye for his destructive wave it's like i have 10 reavers listed here but i'm like yeah but that was probably one one spell that took out all of them and a fair bit of health off the other things um, and, and then another thing monster we've mentioned before, but again, I'm doing a Satan version or Catan version of it is, uh, tools. So I got like a robot tool with like a sort of Borg laser eyepiece and like the, like crazy clamps for, uh, hands, robo tools. Um, then later in the dungeon, we got a pool that has a Catan giant octopus, but also has eight Lacedons and uh, seven of the ice methods. But the real thing I want to zoom in on here is that here with the pool, I'm following up. It's like we've already seen this at least twice in the course of the campaign is this idea that the Nightside Eclipse has these pools that they submerge people in and then the drowning victims within those pools are brought back as Lacedons. Like, that's how they make the Lacedons. And so, you know, it's, it's again, it's that thing I'm saying, I've said before about, like, giving the players a certain signal. But, like, when they find this pool and they see the corpses in it, it's like they know immediately. They've seen this a few times now, and they know immediately. It's like walking into, like, a creepy infested room that's got all these creepy eggs. They know what's going to happen next. The eggs are going to hatch and the monsters are going to come out. Similarly, they find this pool and the corpses all start swimming up and they're like, oh, this is one of those Lacedon pools. Um, beyond the pool with the Lacedons, there was a special sort of area that I had, which was the Sanctum. Or no, 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 sorry. There's the Sanctum where you've got Bone Weirds guarding a scrying orb. But then beyond that, we've got another sort of like big sort of cavern, uh, which was basically the the enemy here is like a Catan Hydra. So like a Hydra that's like robotic, all these different sort of like metal cable heads with these robotic heads. Uh, sorry, metal cable necks with the robotic heads lashing out from them. These uh, these like wire you know sort of robotic mechanical monsters uh your description of them is reminding me a lot of the movie mad god i don't know if you've seen anything to do with mad god i know you've I, recommended it to me and i've uh yeah, yeah. i've taken it to heart that recommendation i want to see it 
But yeah, it's filled with creatures that are like these bizarre biomechanical monstrosities that have, you know, like frayed wires coming out of them and big pieces of machinery and all sorts of rusty spikes and things like that. And I'm getting real mad god vibes from all these these Catan creatures. There's definitely a certain element of it that's like, uh, you know, you see it in... um you know, like System Shock and things like that. I also want to say, Mad God, I think the last time you recommended it to, to me was when I talked about Space Vampirates. And uh, Space Vampirates, like, like like the closest thing you could think to the story of Space Vampirates was Mad God. Yeah, man. Well, I mean, it's it's all this, uh, all these ideas of, of combining sort of magic and, you know, fantasy creatures with harsh mechanical worlds and you know cybernetics and technological transcendence exactly like it like uh, the, the combination of fantasy creatures and biomechanical horror uh, yeah, and when and those two things no... are combined i get i get mad god in my head there's no shortage of like crazy biomechanical horrors in like video games and stuff as well um but also like i don't know i think about like uh those crazy robot birds they had in Rick and Morty. It wasn't a great episode, but they had them. Yeah. It's all sorts uh, of Oh, no, I just said yeah again. Uh, yes, I agree. <laughs> That's not any better. Anyways, the the thing is this Hydra is guarding something that was like so they have the scrying orb in the previous room. But then this room is like a big, big sort of like partially flooded cavern. And throughout it, there are all these shipwrecks. And what these shipwrecks are is like, you know, a ship in a bottle. So then imagine that there's like an evil, like a, an autumn leaf or some sort of sorcerer or something. He's got the scrying warp in the one room. He's got the other huge cavern that is big enough to like house shipwrecks in it. This these wrecks are full ships that he basically he goes on a scrying orb, he finds a ship, he's like, I like that one. And he done plane shifts it into the be like the whole crew and everything gets stuck in this little demi plane. They're oh, the ships like, in the uh... bottle. It's like that uh, that thing from I can't remember which Pirates of the Caribbean movie, but there's definitely one where the Black Pearl is transformed into a ship in a bottle, and to get their ship back, they have to break that bottle. Well, this isn't like that. This is more like uh, you find a cavern full of ships, and all their crews are like skeletons inside, and it's like it's because these ships were taken wholesale to be like ships in bottles but they had their crews inside who just, like, died. It's a whole cavern of one-eyed willies. Yeah, I guess. Sounds weird. Um, there's also <laughs> some uh, treasure here. We got a plus-one scimitar, mariner scale armor, alchemy jug. Do you know the deal with the alchemy jug? The alchemy jug can produce different liquids, right? Yeah, depending which uh, hole you unstop. I mean, depending how the alchemy jug is described. It's you based know, on a magic trick. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. So do you know uh, that one of the things it produces is mayonnaise? Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, For celebrating no, alchemy... sink full of mayo. God. Uh, the alchemy jug is also sometimes known as the assassin's teapot. 
And, oh, I uh, know about that one. Yeah, but the, they're based off of the same principle where there are multiple chambers inside of the jug. And by covering different holes on the outside, you can pour from the different chambers. With the Assassin's Teapot, it's all out of one spout. So it makes for an even better magic well, trick where... I I think in 5e, if you look at the picture, it's like a... It's like kind of like an urn that has like corks in a bunch. Of yeah, it's like spots. it's more of more of like a porcupine kind of arrangement, yeah, right? Because it is like it is magic. Like it is gonna magically. It's not like you fill the compartments with like things like you yeah. would with an assassin's teapot. But si- similar kind of idea. Totally. Do you like that assassin's teapot? So then we get to the level three portal. This is the final sort of cavern area here. I mentioned how all these caverns are sort of like partially flooded. There's like a level of water at the bottom of each of them. And then here around the portal, the water has become frozen. And on the ice, we have another Catan Aboleth by the name of Thrine. We got two more of those Catan Chules. We got a, a, a Catan Water Elemental. So So this one... I didn't go negative energy elemental, but I made it a water elemental, but then said that the water elemental, instead of water, it was actually blood that was full of, like, chunks of ice. It was like an ice blood water elemental. I also include three crocodiles, which I have listed as ice heart crocodiles. I don't know what that means, but I assume that's, like, crocodiles that live in a cold climate somehow. And then I guess. They only eat frozen foods. Anyways, is is this cool monster to have? Is like you've got this frozen landscape. You've got this frozen, like like iced over cavern. You got an Aboleth, sort of like like this huge tentacled monster Robo slug. You got the Robo like chules going around with their clampy claws. You got this bloody icy water elemental, and then you got a bunch of these like crocodiles fighting. But then the real boss is the demon lord that is the ally that is uh, brought through this portal by the Nightside Eclipse, or that is brought into contact. And this is Abath, who I named the Bastard of Stygia, the Spawn of Cryonax. So we know about Cryonax. So this guy is a child of Cryonax. Stygia He's a is smaller a smaller kind of yeti creature. Well, St- well, no, no. This guy was actually some sort of big uh, monster man. But, um, well, okay, so, first of all, I think Stygia is one of the layers of hell, and I think it's one of the ones that's specifically supposed to be, like, cold, and so partially, I, like, like, the idea is that, or, sorry, it wouldn't be a layer of hell, or, no, right, he's the bastard of Stygia because he is the bastard of Cryonax, and a devil that is from Stygia that is associated with Cole. I think that's how I got it right. But then he is a demon lord, and his level, like, like basically the fact that the water here is frozen is basically showing that, like, he comes from, like, one of these frozen layers of the abyss, and just, like, the cold coming out of the portal is, like, frozen, free, freezing the water uh, layer at the bottom of this part of the dungeon. Um... So I do have a question about, uh, like, a big boss like this. Can you give me his full name and title again? So we got Abath, 
It's the Bastard of Stygia and Spawn of Cranax. I've got more to explain about this. But when you reveal this character, this NPC in your game, do you introduce them with like that full title? Do your players ever learn like the full identity? Or is this a case where you're like, you see this, it's coming at you? So they, I know I did reveal the identity to them, but I don't know. Um, like, I know I had this logic to it, but it was, I don't know how much of it was clear to the characters. And I'm not sure what I like got across in the narrative either. Like, although it probably would have been a very simple thing of like, you know, they were informed who these demon lords were going to be by Al Samasath or something like, but uh, in the briefing or something, maybe I did that. It's hard to remember. Um, the thing is that Abba, so, so first of all, each of these three demon lords, um, I had planned this ahead of time because there were, as you may remember, there were three, there was a coven of three hags, right? There was Carmen the Immortal, uh, Saleth the War Witch, and Nervosa the Field Hag. Remember them? Yeah, of course. Each of them was pledged to one of the three demon lords that they that, that the Alzaces then end up fighting at one of these three portals. It's like the whole, like, I guess this sort of like rule of threes thing is like there were three hags and then each of them was like sort of, uh, each of them kind of had a demonic patron that was like their they were sort of the liaison to that ally for the Nightside Eclipse. And in choosing who these demon lords were going to be uh, for each of these hags, um, I actually, again, it's just another metal thing, is there is a fairly famous black metal band called Immortal. And Immortal, man, so Immortal... <laughs> where is this going well you see i i don't even know what is the best place to start i think i'm gonna start with this image um because it's just it's the three members of immortal that i used for the three demons here these members of immortal uh we got abath uh God, is the other one Iskariah or was it Demonaz? There's the the third one I have trouble remembering, the guy on the right. But the guy on the left and the guy in the in the The guy on the left and, and the this guy is, these in the guys middle. are what Kish so what middle, Kiss wishes Abba. they were. He's the singer for Immortal. The guy on the left is Horg. He's the drummer for Immortal. Now does he play the drums with that giant spiky club? I don't thing know, but uh, actually, I had Abath be armed with the great axe of evil and that crazy bat signal axe that he's wielding. That's what it was. That's that's the axe of evil, man. Hell yeah! Here's the thing: is that I now need to show you a different photo from the same. Uh, I 
gotta find a different photo from the same photo shoot. It is critical that I find this. Here's Abath again. Same photo shoot. Can you tell me what's wrong? Uh, let me see here. Like, is this... Did, is this going to be an obvious thing? Like the fact that it seems to be more sepia toned than the previous one? It's not that. What's wrong? Uh, he's holding the axe. It's, uh, is, is this going to be like a spot the difference? Is that what you're telling me? No. It's not a spot the difference. What's wrong? Miguel. I don't know. <laughs> His flies open? Yeah. His fly was open the whole photo shoot. There's like multiple shots of him trying to look all scary with his goofy axe and then he's just got his fly down the whole time. There's also like tons of like memes of these guys like redone to look like professional wrestlers, like Horg wearing like the championship belt. They're, they're, man, his name is Horg. Horg. Um... Man, one time they did this uh, music video that's just like them running around in the forest like a bunch of goofballs. Uh, and uh, With their flies open? Well, no, but we got this great gif of them uh, messing around. You can even see the point where the guy said action because first they're just standing there. <laughs> Immortal's hilarious is the point. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, Abath is the one in the witch hat, I believe, in that music video. Uh, Immortal's hilarious, and each of these guys from Immortal, that's who I based the Demon Lords on. Even funnier is uh, around this time, I ended up going to the metal restaurant in Ottawa, uh, uh, The Coven, and uh, that they had a painting of the three guys from Immortal. I took a picture and showed it to the players and everything. I used that painting as like picture of them in their frozen nice. form. It's crazy. So you know what I'm you know what I'm gonna ask now, right? What are you gonna ask? Well, in the painting, was this fly down in the painting too? I don't think so. I don't think it was. I think I would have <laughs> noticed. It might have been this one though where he's like covering his crotch so you can't tell. Anyway. Um, so the first of all these Abath, um, I'm pretty sure I even had him have like a special legendary action that was like, he opened a, a void portal, like at crotch level that then like sucked the heat out of the air or something. Um, whatever the case, uh, oh yeah. And it's funny. Cause then I, I added that thing of him having like a weird, like void maw in his crotch but then the guy who played Chessy, I guess there's like a super demon that they made in like one edition of Dungeons and Dragons that has like a big mouth in its belly. And he thought that I was alluding to one of those. And so it made it even more fearsome, even though I was actually alluding to a joke that I think just my brother got. Um, but whatever the case, this is where they had their battle with uh, Abath and... Another thing to say about this, in addition to the fact that they got the final acts of evil from Abath, but um, the reason it's important that Ara Kendor got the Trident of Fish Command 
is because Tide Rebel... So I mentioned that each of the cursed weapons was actually produced by one of these allies of the of the Night Side Eclipse by way of the Autumn Leaves. And so each of the... And this is another thing that like goes back to the Princes of the Apocalypse is like there's a cursed weapon associated with each of the cults and then each of those cults has a certain elemental base which they then have a portal to their elemental plane. And so by the same principle, it's like in those, the idea is the elemental weapon can be used as a sort of... Um, as a sort of key to like self-destruct the portal, basically. It's like the weapon is made from the portal and therefore can be used to sort of like negate its uh, function. And so similarly... There was this idea of like, well, Tide Rebel is attuned to the plane that like this portal leads to. And so Tide Rebel could actually like the, I gave Ara the chance to like sacrifice this cursed weapon that had treated him so well by like plunging it into the portal and destroying the portal that way. And he did choose to do that. But then as Ara Kendor, he gets to keep his whole trident aesthetic because he keeps the trident of fifth fish command as a, you know, as a loyal demigod uh, cleric of Poseidon. I like that. And uh, from there, that's uh, two portals down, two more to go. And the next two, we know that one of them is going to be, uh, we're going to be up against the third guy in Immortal, whether it's Iskariah or Demonaz, I can't remember. And uh, whatever the case, they're definitely going to have to fight Horg in the next episode. Was there like a an Asildor moment with that trident? Cast it into the portal. Destroy it. I mean, kind of. Although, like, it was kind of just like, like no one had to tell him. It it was me as the dungeon master telling him that like he had the realization of like the attunement between the the spear and the portal or the trident and the portal sorry um and then he sort of like did made the decision within himself after having that realization sounds pretty metal yeah it all just continues to be uh metal you know just uh just make sure taking off the metal box to examine your zipper yeah, I got it. Shut, shut your barn door. Goofy stuff. Tavern time! It's tavern time. Unless you sure got is. any other questions for me. Nah, man. So, uh, well, actually, I guess I have, I have one, which is... Uh, we're down to what? Three more sessions in Al's Aces? Two. Two more sessions. Two and they're corals? I was that was going to be it. So they're both like focused on closing those portals. Yeah. And actually, right I will say so this session was definitely or or this operation with this level of the Carbon Spire was definitely at least two um sessions when I ran it because of how I have my notes written out. Um but also like very shortly like 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 pretty early into the next operation um we finished the first session of it and then like 
the winter break happened and I was trapped in that second last level of the Carmen Spire for ages. Man, I remember I remember coming in uh, hanging out with you in Toronto and just all my notes, just like uh, everything I was doodling in my notebook. It was just me doing the same damn level of the Carmen Spire over and over again, just prepping <laughs> so I'd be ready for that one damn thing that I'd been waiting all damn winter for. I remember oh, that. Dangus Mangus. All right, tavern time? Yeah, tavern time. Do you get, do you have anything for the tavern? I oh, yeah, something. yeah, I, I do, actually. I do have something. Well, I got another short one. Should I go first? It's just a real handy little resource. I'm going to go first this time. How about that? Yeah, you do it. All right. McGill, what would you say... If I told you, uh, yeah, I'm gonna let's play a Dungeons and Dragons game, but uh, all of your stats before you pick your ability bonus, before you pick your like racial bonus, they're all gonna be at 18. What do you think of that? Uh, that to me suggests that uh, it's gonna be a really challenging game. You think so? Well, if you're giving me maxed out attributes right off the top, that probably means I'm going up against some really big challenges, right? High DCs. Yeah, but you're going to have, like, crazy good powers. You know? I guess it depends how I scale it. I mean, uh, also, so what about... um, What about uh, we're playing Big Eyes, Small Mouth, and, uh, man, I don't even know what the... what what are reasonable numbers in that anymore. That's not a good example. I've, I've, I, no, I've never even played that one. I know a no, lot no, about no. it because of you. Well, but. You, you would understand from the example I'm trying to make here. Uh, okay, so how about, you know, I ran that game uh, Shards of Olympus. And Shards yeah. of Olympus, you know, White Wolf games, they use uh, the D10s. You know, Scion, it uses uh, D10s. You roll a lot of D10s. have a pool of D10s. Do you know about this? Yeah, and the isn't the number for your stat that's the number of d10s you roll. Yeah, and and you're trying to get uh in World of Darkness, you're trying to get 8 or higher, an 8 or higher success. You're trying to get as many successes as possible. Sure. In Scion, it's 7 or higher. Um and then in Shards of Olympus, I think I actually changed it from d10s to being d6s. And then with every, like, I, as I developed Shards of Olympus more, I remember I was even messing around with, like, what the target number was that you needed on the D6. What if you, what what if I told you we're going to play a role-playing game? Oh, what if I told you we're going to play Fleshscape, which is a game where uh, a lot of things are, like, just D6 rolls, but uh, your, your save on everything is going to be 2+. plus. So, I mean, are, you're just looking for my, like, reaction to kind a of, DM yeah. I'm kind of saying... just getting your, like, gut reaction. See, what I called this uh, in my notes for the episode in the tavern is called All Dialed Cranked. What happens, so, like, what do you think when a DM comes to you and says, I want to play the game, but I want your, I want all the players to have all their dials cranked? 
So as I said, my instinct would be this is power gaming, right? We're going to be going up against like epic level ch challenges that require very high results, results that can only be achieved when you have your stats cranked up to max. But as you're describing this, another possibility that I foresee is uh, maybe the DM wants something like the Artful Escape, where it's really just going to be about story and role playing and they want to make sure that all your roles are probably going to succeed so that the the story can just flow without having to slow down for something like combat or a skill challenge. Yeah, I'm sort of talking about this is the idea of, you know, role playing games all have in their design a certain level of like, you know, disparity between stat numbers is, is very normal. It's like I have a high charisma but a low strength and like, like particularly the example there, if like, if it's a game where we're playing with D sixes and you only need two or higher, it's a game where you're like, you know, it's a, it's a question of progressively reducing the challenge rating. Right. Right. But, and what you're talking about with the, the spread of numbers in your stats I think a lot of that comes around just based on the fact that most RPG systems involve character classes and a way to make those character classes distinct from each other is to have them focus on different stats. Whereas, you know, a bard is more about charisma and uh, a fighter is more about strength. And so uh, by incorporating those classes that are reliant on different attributes and stats, you're encouraging, I guess, more specialized role playing. You're making it so that all your players, all the characters aren't too samey because they, by necessity, have to have different stats depending on their class. And this takes me back to the thing of, you know, all dials cranked is the idea of like, you can do that with the intention of reducing the challenge level of the game or increasing it, as you said it originally. But what interests me is that it didn't jump out at you, but it's something that the more you think about it, I think will like manifest is when you do this, there is a perhaps unforeseen side effect, which is you begin to reduce the disparity or the the sense of difference between characters like if i say it's a game that before you apply your racial bonuses you're all gonna have 18 for every stat then the question should also be like well wait does that mean that the only difference between me and the other players is gonna be like two ability score points which that that would by necessity mean, right? At the start anyway, but with a lot of systems, you can also alter your stats just by leveling up, right? Yeah. I feel like an inherent part of these RPG systems is the fact that at a certain point, you're going to have to choose one stat over another. And this, I guess this is the thing is that like in, in this scenario, it's like you're you're offered to join a game where all your stats are just going to be maxed out from the beginning. All right. What do you, th what do you think of that? 
I mean, who? Hey, who's my DM? I mean, is is that what it comes down to? Do you think? Well, yeah, because if it's sort of like what you're describing is almost like turning on, you know, a God mode code in a video game. I think also there's like obviously there's... it's it's taking away part of the challenge, but. If a DM who I've played with before, who I know is a really good storyteller, tells me to do this, I'll probably trust them and be like, all right, let's see what he's got, you know, got in mind about this. See, this is I guess this is what I'm wondering is like, I don't know how like like I don't. Hmm. Like I, guess, I on the show on this show, I, I've talked before about Slug, the simple laid back universal game system where it's really just like the most bare bones framework for storytelling. And if all your stats in like a D&D game start at maximum, you're level one and you have 18 in every attribute, then it really is just sort of like saying, yeah, but you know what? The the rules, all of the, the rules about like combat and challenges and stuff, they're not going to matter as much in that game. Because it's going to be so easy, at least at the start, uh, that none of that is going to pose that much of a challenge. So my mind immediately says, like, really all we're doing is we're changing the focus from the structure of the rules and things like skill challenges or combat and dice rolls. We're changing it so that the focus is more on the story and the characters. Unless it's a really bad DM, in which case sounds kind of boring. Well, this is the thing is that I don't Ooh, I got a 20 again. <laughs> yeah, it's a quite it's a thing of like, you know, do you does giving the players that amount of power and taking away any sense of like uh flaw like any any sense of like shortcomings does that sort of like inherently sabotage the drama of the game? Like is is it possible to get past that and make something of it? Or is it just inherently a bad idea? I think there's like, and there's definitely trends within this idea of like sort of reductionism and, and sort of uh, playing to like extremes is like, just like, again, it's, it's all dials cranked. It's like play it with everything to the extreme. And it's like, do you actually end up with a more extreme, more like, power gamey story then or do you just end up with a game where like there's not that much to differentiate the players do you end up with just like you know there's that rick and morty episode where he's sort of like taking apart the avengers or whatever and he says he like says uh put the statement like connect the statement to the character that it applies to but the joke is that all the statements apply to all the characters it's like nobody's really that special. It's like <laughs> is that is that what would end up happening if you just like supercharge everybody? I don't necessarily. Well, you know, I stand by my statement earlier, which is I think it just really depends on the DM. If I was invited to play D and D with someone who I had never played with before as DM, brand new DM to me. And then when it came to character creation, they were like, all right, all your stats are 18. Then I'd be kind of suspicious. I'd be like, does this, does this person know what they're doing? <laughs> but uh, but if you, 
for example, if you were like, come play in my new game, all your stats are 18, I'd be like, Tom's got something up his sleeve. Yeah, there's got to be there's got to be some method behind this madness. I mean, maybe the method behind the madness is I just want to see what happens if uh, all the players have maxed out stats. But because of the nature of RPGs, like it is very much that, you know, the the DM is running the game and presumably the DM is running the game because they have fun running the game. And I know I, as a DM, enjoy pitting my players against challenges and like putting them in in tricky situations to see how they'll get out of it. So presumably, if you were doing this and you're like, I just want to see what happens when all the stats are set to 18 from the get go. uh, I assume at a certain point early on, you'd be like, well, this is too easy. I've got to up the ante. I've got to make it more difficult because I had planned for the session the last three hours and they got through it in 15 minutes because they just instantly killed every monster without any challenge at all. I think maybe to put a cap on this topic is my... Uh, what I would lean towards if I did this is the idea of playing up the idea that the players are like some kind of like hyper beings. Um, The whole idea of the vampire Kings Chronicle comes to mind. And that idea of like you have your character is so powerful that they are kind of above the day to day action of the game. And really they have minions that will be doing things for them. And so it becomes more of a game of like, keeping your organization intact and like making sure, Sure. uh, you know, using the right people as the right tools for the right jobs. Um, But it's also like like when when I think of an idea for a campaign for where everybody has stats at 18, for example, I imagine like a game where you've got a party and they've specifically like each one of them is sort of like JC Denton from Deus Ex where it's like you have been, nano augmented to be like the best that you can be like a sort of a party of robocops or something where it's like there is a real emphasis on the fact that these people are like have been made to be above average in every way for some reason absolutely i can and i can think of a lot of interesting scenarios to explore those ideas right like what if the characters wind up in a place like maybe on a different planet where they are just the superior they're godlike beings compared to the inhabitants of this planet or what if, how do they navigate you know what what kind of situations would that result in what if it's my idea where it's a fleet where each player is captain of a ship but it's in this sci-fi future where like being captain of the ship requires like so much mental power that like captains are all like augmented to be like superhumans, and so you've got a crew of like normal humans you have to care about, but then like your actual character is basically the ship, is like the brain of the ship, and is like this crazy like robot man that interfaces with the ship, and he's the only person who can like do that, and everybody else is like a crewman. Yeah, this this all just reinforces sort of my assertion earlier, which is that if you're doing this, if, you know, all dials cranked, uh, all that's really going to do, provided you're in the hands of a good DM, is just change the focus of play. It'll change it away from, you know, rolling the dice for combat, rolling the dice for your skills, and it will shift it instead into 
more character focused role play. If you have if everybody's playing as these superhuman characters, especially if they're playing as these superhuman characters who are surrounded by just like mundane normal NPCs, then in a way it'll shift more to like, you know, focus on their humanity. If you are a godlike being, what does it mean to be human anymore, you know? It, like Dr. Manhattan is seemingly omnipotent, but you can still tell a really interesting story about Dr. Manhattan. And you can play on like whether or not, like you, there's two different scenarios there where there's the scenario where you have godlike power and everyone around you is normal and everyone knows that you have godlike power. Or there's the Superman or like superhero scenario where it's like you have a secret identity. You're like trying to keep it under wraps. Yeah. Sure. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, though I would question the system you're using. If somebody was like, we're playing D&D, all your stats are 18, I'd kind of go like, so why D&D? Like, why make it a system that's so built around your stats if the stats ultimately aren't going to matter as much? Because 18 still isn't that great in Bounded AC world. If this was White Wolf and you were all stats at 5... That'd be disastrous. If it was riffs and all stats were at 100%, that wouldn't even make any goddamn sense. (laughs) Anyway. Anyway. What do you got? So this is a real uh, just straightforward resource. I'm going to post the link for you right here. The Tolkien estate, you know, the granddaddy of fantasy literature, J.R.R. Tolkien, his estate on their website recently uploaded high resolution scans of all sorts of maps that Tolkien drew himself. And uh, I just immediately saw this as like top notch, cool resource if you want to poach a Tolkien map for your RPG purposes, because these maps, man, they're great. And uh, he drew a lot of them on like proper map paper. Uh, This one he did of uh, Beleriand from the Quenta Silmarillion in the 1930s, like the way he's done the water, it looks like a proper like topographical chart that somebody's done. Um, they a lot of them have, you know, elven ruins just sort of doodled on them as well. Uh, they all have that great fantasy flavor. And I mean, you've seen uh, sort of tastes of this. If you watch like the Lord of the Rings movies, you see his map of Middle Earth that he's done. But I think that these are all just really cool looking uh, fantasy maps of Middle Earth, of course. And uh, yeah, just neat. Use them for your purposes. I might do so, especially because they're all hand drawn. Like they do have that that rough uh, RPG notebook look to them. You can see smudges like where he erased stuff. And you can uh, find these. Game in set in Middle Earth where suddenly there's Robocops in Middle Earth and they've got 18 on all their stats. (laughs) Hey, I mean... Could be interesting. Why Robocops? Let's do uh, Terminator Middle Earth. Man, that I was literally just, I got thinking about the, uh, God, I can't remember if it was Saturday Night Live or Mad TV, 
but it's the greatest action story ever told. And it's about Terminator going back in time to save Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so you can find these at Tolkienestate.com slash painting slash maps, or you can just go to Tolkienestate.com and in the painting menu, there is a sub section for maps. Uh, and you can also find like samples of illustrations Tolkien did and calligraphy um, you know, all this stuff is really great if you're operating in a high fantasy setting. It can really help build out your world, uh, stand on the shoulders of a, a giant of the fantasy genre. And uh, yeah, all these maps are just really, really awesome quality. I thought they were all really cool. Have uh, a role-playing game where all the people from Wormoroboros come and invade middle earth oh snap oh the fantasy worlds there's a um, great one of these maps uh it's near the bottom of the page where it's a map of rohan gondor and mordor and it's drawn and it has it charts the action for uh the lord of the uh, book five of the lord of the rings so you can see sort of where the characters travel to and just you know like Tolkien's actual sort of story notes on where all the characters are going across Middle-earth as he was writing the book. Well, if you want to get in touch with us, see when we post new episodes or follow us, check us out on Facebook at Comparing Campaign. Comparing Campaign on Facebook. Uh, if you want to see where we post updates uh, or show notes, supplemental materials, all our stuff like things we talk about we put it up on this site it's comparingcampaign.wordpress.com find my notes pictures of the axes of evil pictures of immortal picture of middle earth links to all those games i talked about anything else level up crank your stats all stats to 18 not me unless i do oh man don't steal because it's haunted take care everybody <laughs> <laughs>